You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 19th of December 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Because and 80% of the votes cast for members of this House were for members of this House who stood on a manifesto commitment to honour the referendum and deliver on Brexit. A hundred days to go. Someone will tell us what the plan is any second now. My guests, Charles Hecker and Sebastian Borger, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including another dump of diplomatic cables. Do they really tell us anything we didn't know? Space Force. And the Financial Times' generous Christmas gift to the world's seething conspiracy theorists. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Charles Hecker, Senior Partner at Control Risks, and Sebastian Borger, London Correspondent for Die Tagesspiegel. Welcome both to the programme. And we start here in the UK, the political and media class of which has spent most of today arguing over whether the leader of the opposition did or did not call the Prime Minister a stupid woman. This is perfectly fine, as we have an entire 100 days before the country faces a massive self-inflicted and altogether avoidable national crisis, so there's all the time in the world for the Speaker of the House to be consulting with lip readers. Granted, the UK's five leading employers groups have again warned that a no-deal Brexit would be calamitous, but what do people who know things know about anything? Uh, Charles, this is all going excellently, isn't it? It's absolutely descending into farce, and there is this bizarre playing of games, um, not with just the European Union now, but with the citizens of the United Kingdom. What's happened by Prime Minister Theresa May saying, we need to all get ready for a no-deal Brexit is two things, and that is that she used to be playing chicken with the European Union, saying, give us a good deal or else, you know, we'll stop buying your cars, or we'll stop trading in your bonds, or we'll cut off our markets to you for champagne. Um, what she's doing now is she's playing chicken with the UK, uh, and she's now trying to frighten us, or she's trying to frighten her legislators, or she's trying to frighten business or constituencies. And that's a significant shift because I don't think anybody takes her seriously that we're really going to crash out. Now, having said that, the likelihood that we ha we will crash out is increasing, though it hasn't crossed the 50% mark. And anybody who's involved in crisis management will say, well, you know, this may be an outlier, but we can't get caught with our trousers down. And so we're going to have to do some planning for this because it could still happen. Uh, Sebastian, it, it would be kind of appropriate, and you're, and you're sighing before I've even finished answering the question, it would be, it would be kind of appropriate um, if the end of all this was Britain leaving the, UK, leaving the EU without a deal by accident. I disagree with Charles insofar as I am one of those who is, who thinks the risk is very high. Uh, uh, and I think there are a number of people around who now think that it's, it's well possible. Because we, we, could, we should keep in mind, shouldn't we, that the default setting from where we not out now are is Britain leaves without a deal. It By fact of law, law on March law. 29th, unless Article 50 is revoked, the UK is leaving the EU one way or the other. Indeed. We, we can argue about whether it's the 29th or the 30th, because, of course, it'll be the 30th in, on continental. 
<laughs> but um, let's not do that. Um, no, seriously, I, I, um, I look at the House of Commons uh, where there are very clever people and some extraordinarily stupid ones and and you look at the um, you know the, the the parties the strength of the parties and I can easily see a, a, a situation coming up where the gov the, the parliament rejects um, the deal the only deal that is on the table in so far Prime Minister May is right um, and then and then what and then what uh, you know then people are saying well I'll resign the conservative whip and vote for for whichever is is necessary well let's wait and see you know people have said a lot of things along the way and and nothing came to pass uh, Charles the UK has announced that it is now allocating two billion pounds uh, to fund preparations for a no deal Brexit and I think at 350 million a week that's about seven weeks worth of what we were promised on the side of the bus <laughs> Uh, right there. Um, again, is there an element, I mean, this is very expensive theatrics at this point, but is there an element of theatrics about this? Or is it? Is there an argument that this is just, if we leave aside the irresponsibility of the entire venture, that this is responsible government planning for an actual potential contingency? Well, the problem is it's hard to tell the difference between the two. Uh, because how seriously can you take uh, the discussion of hiring an extra 3,000 customs officers, none of whom will know what to do on the 30th of March? Or how seriously can you take the message that came out that the UK, that HMRC, Revenue and Customs, is going to send out 80,000 copies of a 100-page memo to every UK registered business at a time when nobody who works at a business in the UK ever reads a memo that is longer <laughs> than a page. You know, and, and at that, that's, that's pushing it. Um, so there are a certain amount of theatrics in this, and that's why I think it's so regrettable that, that this is what it's come to. Um, as far as reasonable crisis management is, th is, is concerned, you know, I thought about analogies and I thought about the introduction of the euro mm -hmm. and all of the planning that went in before the switch over to the common currency on the continent. And, you know, that was everything from making sure the ATMs worked on the morning uh, of the introduction of the euro to sort of planning out everything about, you know, how little old ladies are going to handle the tiny little one euro cent coin when they go down to the grocery store for their baguette in the morning. And, you know, that was years of planning. And this is something of a similar, you know, an equal magnitude where we've got 100 days and we've just gotten started. Uh, Sebastian, we have heard from the European Commission, uh, who do seem to have given this slightly more thought. They, have, they say they've started to implement their preparations for a no-deal Brexit. Uh, what do you glean from the EU Commission's plans? Obviously, for the EU, a, a, a no-deal Brexit would be a disruption to a lot of the EU as well, though obviously that would be spread over 27 countries, so it wouldn't be as disastrous for the EU as it would be for the UK but how serious do you how serious a thing do they think it sounds there are certain regions where it will be extraordinarily disastrous Ireland you know, most obviously Ireland yeah. most obviously but certain parts of Germany I mean Bremen uh, there's been studies that uh, uh, the GDP of Bremen which is admittedly one of the smaller regions of Germany but uh, will will go go back by 5% so so that matters you know um 
but I'm not sure whether the whether I mean theatrics. Yes, on the one hand. On the other hand, we we now have a health secretary here in London who tells us he's bought additional um, uh, f freezing. Uh, I mean, if refrigerating capacity, and who's installed a a, a plane link between Maastricht of all places and Birmingham in case we need emergency medicines. The the European Union, I think, is is doing again, and I I have to say, in in so far again, I would, I would give the uh, British government some leeway. It's very very late in the day, but it's something that you have to do if you seriously contemplate no deal. They shouldn't do that, but clearly they are. And and given the House of Commons, um, I think. That, that is the responsible thing to do for a government at the moment. OK, well, let's move along now. Uh, not for the first time. The leak of supposedly confidential cables traded among diplomats has confirmed that things actually are pretty much as we already knew or might have guessed. The document dump, apparently the result of a hack of the EU's diplomatic communications networks, has revealed large-scale concerns in corridors of power that perhaps the American people didn't make the wisest choice of president that they might have in 2016. More, I can catching our concerns not previously raised in public that Russia might already have parked nuclear weapons in occupied Crimea or be considering doing so. Um, Charles, how, how big a deal is the hack in and of itself? Um, to the extent that it has been traced back and attributed, something that's always very difficult to do in the world of hacking, to the extent that it's being attributed to China, um, I think what's significant about this is it shows the blurring of the lines between cyber hacking and espionage. And I think what cyber hacking is doing now is it's acting as a massive force multiplier to the way that states normally snoop on each other. Mm. And so I think it's really upping the stakes. Um, is it that big of a change or a difference from what happened with Chelsea Manning and WikiLeaks? Probably not. It's probably not quite as dramatic as that. The information was not actively publicized um, in the New York Times coverage of this incident. Uh, the Times notes that it was given copies of some of these hacked cables. Um, but what it reminds us is the immense power that states have to eavesdrop on each other. And it's, it's really going beyond the eavesdropping and reaching into what are supposed to be the most secure channels of communication between governments. And I think what's interesting about this is it was just the way they got in was so utterly banal. It was just a phishing attack aimed at Cyprus uh, where perhaps they're just not as careful about what they click on in emails. And it was just fish, click, hack. And it was as simple as it could be. Uh, Sebastian, I'm actually always quite reassured when things like this happen. And you, and you, and you get to see what the people who run the world actually <laughs> say amongst themselves. And I just tend to read through them going, yeah, that, that sounds about right. That's, that's pretty much what I imagined you would think. It, 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 it always, to me, you know, dispels any suggestion that there's some nefarious conspiracy in a darkened room secretly orchestrating things. It, it, it's, it's a world full of people sending each other messages going, what the hell is going on now? 
<laughs> Particularly within the European Union. Well, yes. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, I in in to that extent I agree with you. Yes, um, and and also I mean Charles is, is very right to point out that um, it, it it's too easy to get into the clearly too easy to get into that particular part of communications within the European Union if if that is the way they they got in. Um, what it tells us, doesn't it, is that China is a is is a malign force, and we have to take more care ab- ab- about that. And and of course, it it also I think suggests that we need to be much more proactive um, in the West, uh, the Western military, um, how to deal with um, cyber attacks, and and how to be proactive in in hacking other countries. Um, Charles, the, the, the one newsworthy thing to have emerged from this, if indeed it is a thing, is this idea of Russia either actually or considering placing nuclear weapons in Crimea. If Russia did that, and it's not necessarily my area of expertise, but I can't perceive what great strategic region there, reason there would be for doing that, is it, is it that big a deal? Or is it just Russia saying, this is something else we can do just because we can? No, I think that would be a pretty big deal. Um, the relocation of nuclear missiles, first of all, is an enormous tactical task. Um, secondly, you know, for Russia to sort of up the ante or to raise the temperature in Crimea to the level of tactical nuclear weapons, um, you know, on the face of it, actually, it just doesn't sound right. Russia doesn't need to move tactical nuclear weapons anywhere near Ukraine um, to to create the, the, the chaos. Or not any nearer than it already has. Or not any nearer than they already are. Exactly. You know, you push a button and they kind of go and they'll get there. Um, you know, what I found from all of this is it sort of echoes the remarks that you made just a second ago. And that is I found all of this quite comforting because what it tells us is that European diplomats are worried about Iran and they're worried about Russia and they're worried about the chaos coming out of the White House. And, you know, I felt quite reassured because I think these are things that you better be worried about these days in, in diplomatic channels. Um, you only got a couple of decent kind of personal zingers in this where they said the the Helsinki summit was a huge success for Putin. <laughs> and, um, you know, other sort of things about Xi Jinping saying that he was being bullied by President Trump during trade talks. Um, but otherwise, um, luckily, I suppose, this is exposing European diplomacy as business as normal. The only thing that's not normal about it is people are supposed to be quiet about these things. We should, we should say that there are two further levels of encryption uh, when uh, about communication that actually matters. So, Indeed. So, 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 you know, this is the lowest level. Um, f- uh, great fun, but, but not really important. Can I just say, as far as atomic weapons on Crimea are concerned, in, I think I would, I would argue in, in classic diplomatic history of the 20th century, if, if, if a, a similar thing had happened in 1914, it would have been a declaration of war. Absolutely, no doubt about it. It, it would as if as if Russia were uh, uh, putting twenty five divisions towards the, the 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 frontier with Germany, and 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 it would clearly signal what you wanted to do. Well, you know, the historical analogy that I was looking at is whether this would trigger another thing like the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, and you know, I think we would learn it's very serious and very serious indeed. Well, I think we would learn how much people really cared about Ukraine if all of a sudden it had nuclear weapons, uh, you know, close to its borders. Okay. Well, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Charles Hecker and Sebastian Borger. Coming up next, Space Force. 
Join Monocle's double issue of Seasonal Celebrations. Our bumper December-January edition is an essential guide to being the perfect host this holiday. We focus on the art of entertaining, how to create the most welcoming home, and the best gifts you should be giving. But before you get too comfortable, join the roller coaster ride of our annual Soft Power Survey. He's also a believer in soft power, and he's also a believer in that France can do good in the world, and that French culture is something to be championed and to be celebrated at this point. Think big. We have some serious sit-down interviews with the likes of Christiane Amonpour and music sensation Christine and the Queens. Chris. More lessons are learned in our business section, where we ask rebels, thinkers and fixers to tell us about the moments that changed their life in 2018. While in culture... Eurovision Song Contest and Pulitzer Prize winners alike reveal what happens after the prize and why winning is not always the best pathway to success. In design, we dim the lamps and unveil a manifesto on good lighting, as well as visiting a very special Zurich apartment with a host who's mastered the art of cosy in a confined space. Monocle's December-January issue is out now. Get your copy or subscribe at monocle.com. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Andrew Muller, along with Charles Hecker and Sebastian Borger. And let us now roll our eyes heavenward in more ways than one. If US President Donald Trump treasures one fantasy more fondly than his non-existent Mexican border wall, it is Space Force, his proposed sixth branch of the US military, the uniforms for which he will nigh certainly insist on designing personally. Tediously, however, Trump is dependent on congressional approval for Space Force, but it turns out that he can, by presidential fiat create Space Command. So he has. US Space Command will have responsibility for, among other things, the possibility of fighting wars in space, which sounds like marvellous fun. Um, Charles, in, in fairness, there was an actual Space Command before, between 1985 and 2002. Is this one of those ideas which actually isn't a completely terrible idea? We just assume it is because Trump has had it. Yeah, that's right. And there'll probably be a long list of people suggesting that he go on one of the very first launches. <laughs> um, but yes, there has always always been a part of the U.S. military dedicated to space. Um, outer space is absolutely critical, not just to the U.S. military, but to military forces, large military forces all around the world because of the satellites in orbit. They are the devices that guide ships. They guide aircraft. They guide missiles. They spy on each other. And protecting those missiles from countries that are now rapidly developing the technology to bring them out of orbit in outer space has always been very important. So we're kind of back to the status quo, but you've got President Trump whipping this up into something to secure his base, to distract us from everything else that's going on, and just to make him feel quite important. Um, Sebastian, how, how far do you think Trump has thought this through? Does he just like saying Space Force in public? I mean, it, it is a satisfying phrase. I, I, I can see the appeal, I will confess. Space Command is always oh, marvelous. As I well, don't know. I, 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 I like. I, I've, I can see you, it. I've, you like I've, Space Force. I have a preference for Space Force. <laughs> all right, all right. I, I can see well, why he's sticking <laughs> to his guns on that. Well, we haven't really seen much reaction yet, have we, from Congress? As far as I know, no. There's a long way to go on this one. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
It's a little bit of a uh, Santa Claus uh, gift to his, as you said, to, to his base. Uh, nothing, nothing particularly new, and something which I suppose a, a power like um, like the U.S. and and China and and um, and Russia, etc., have to consider. I mean, we we were at some point. I I, I seem try to remember whether we actually had a treaty about the uh, demilitarization of space. But I don't think we have under the auspices of the United Nations. No, for example, I'm thinking about the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, and I don't think that that extends no. to outer space exactly so 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 that's in a way a shame um it tells us again something which we we're not so keen on at the end of 2018 in other words the the um rather sad state that unilateral um treaties like that are in at the moment uh, Charles, when you say this is exciting to his base, really how big a deal is space force going to be to people who still pointed airplanes um, conceptually, it will be something. It is It is one of these sort of apple pie, flag-waving sorts of issues that get people proud of the United States. But I, I would also add the, the, the counterbalance that the percentage of Trump voters who believe that the moon landings are a hoax, I suspect, is not small. Um, no, and I might be inclined to agree, to agree with you, you know, heaven forbid that we say anything condescending about Trump voters, but... Um, first time for I, everything. I think what happens is if you say, oh, isn't it a good idea to have a, a division of the armed forces dedicated to outer space? You know, that group of people are going to say, oh, yes, that's really good. That's a great idea. And then if you ask them the slightest sort of second degree follow up question and say, well, this is going to cost $100 billion, they might say, oh, wait a second. And so conceptually, yeah, it's something that gets people riled up. Um, they'll move on. We've moved on from, we'll move on from Space Force in another couple of weeks and wait until the Democrats take control of the House of Representatives, who's going to hold some of the purse strings to funding this Space Force, and we'll see how quickly this argument goes away. Well, exactly that, Sebastian. Does does Trump's, you know, clear desire for this, it is, it is one of the things he doesn't forget, this and his Mexico wall. He has various other whims which sort of come and go uh, in a matter of minutes, but he does seem quite keen on this. Does that give a Democratic House of representatives a certain amount of leverage let's make america great again <laughs> um, let's make space great again exactly um by by definition of course space is american isn't it in in uh, mr trump's uh, worldview i would have thought of course you know that democrats can play play around with it on the other hand i suppose um there are certain needs that the military have um, regardless who is in the White House, um, as, as, as with regards to, to space uh, uh, exploration or, or control, as Charles has pointed out. You wanted to come in? Oh, no, I was just going to say that, you know, the, the idea of, of preparing for an attack on a satellite by having the Space Force is, is an interesting one because if another country were at Russia, for example, if another country were to shoot one of our military uh, satellites out of the sky, out of space, that in itself could constitute an act of war. Mm. And you don't need a space force to do that. Well, I mean, it's so far it's been based within Air Force, hasn't it? U.S. Yeah. Air Force. And so it, it, it really is only theatrics. I mean, again, it's just another example of the ongoing blurring of, of you know, what are we ready for? Is a cyber hack an act of war? And should it provoke a military response? And so now we're taking the argument to, into outer space. Let it stay there.
Okay, well, finally tonight, it is that time of year at which various entities name their people, places, books, records, trouser presses of the year. The Financial Times, in an exquisite act of trolling, has declared its person of the year to be George Soros, the Hungarian-American financier, whose name has lately become a bat signal for fulminating cranks on social media who believe him to be the hidden hand behind no end of liberal sedition. Although, if George Soros is listening, I still haven't been paid for attending that Women's March thing nearly two damn years ago, and I've resent my invoice nearly a dozen times now. Um, Sebastian, are, are, are the FT just trying to be funny here? Look, I admire the guy. He is he he has he was a refugee. How much has he paid you to say that? Um, <laughs> he was a refugee from 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 Hungary, of course, being Jewish um, from from German. Well, they weren't occupied, were they? But they were collaborating with Germany, the fascists in Hungary then, um, and and he built his um, his great fortune with uh, some bits which I don't agree with, and others that are just uh, run of the mill in capitalism. But he has now, for I think it's fair to say, more than thirty years, um, spent a lot of money on very good causes, and you know every liberal democrat in the world ought to applaud him. And so that is what the Financial Times, which is, after all, the, 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 the central organ of liberal democracy in, in anyway in Britain and, and, and across the world, uh, is doing. I, I, can't see the, I can't see the problem with that at all. Uh, no, nor can I. It's, uh, it is one of those people that... The very same people who, who get terribly excited if anybody attempts to... Uh, suggest that perhaps people with money have too much influence in politics tend to be the first to condemn George Soros for using his money uh, to influence politics. Um, Charles, why has he become such a, a lightning rod for conspiracy theorists? Uh, in part because he's Jewish. And in no small part, yeah. I suspect. Let's, let's not um, discount the fact that um, these are ugly but uh, widely used tropes for sort of blaming the Jews for pulling the strings of the world and controlling everything from behind the scenes. Um, the other thing is that he's a financier and that this is all done through money he made by managing money. Um, probably it doesn't help that he's associated with um, the pound crashing out of the ERM in 1992 and the fact that he almost broke the Bank of England. He's the founder, you could say, of the hedge fund industry, which is being blamed for just about everything else that George Soros isn't being blamed for. And so the fact that, you know, he's not, for example, an Andrei Sakharov or somebody like that who is, is, is a man of, you know, who spoke out against the, the, the nuclear program of the Soviet Union, was, in, was imprisoned and, and, and suffered and was isolated and took an extremely principled public stand at enormous personal risk. Um, you know, one of the photographs that was circulating today of Soros in connection with, with the FT's nomination to Person of the Year is of him sitting in a corner office um, overlooking Manhattan with his feet up on his desk. And, 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 you know, so you sort of think, well, here's a fat cat. Um, but I completely agree with Sebastian that, you know, this is, this is top-notch trolling and, and that this is an individual who has supported liberal and democratic causes around the world at expense to himself. He was the first guy, by the way, to get a pipe bomb um, from the folks who sent out a series of, so. of pipe bombs around, around the U.S. Uh, last month. 
So your check will be in the post in due course as well, Charles. This is excellent. Uh, just just before we go, I, I, I did want to ask you both in turn. I'll start with you, Sebastian. I'm giving you a chance to name your person of the year. It's a double nomination. Go on. Uh, um, it's uh, the the poor old European Union uh, stroke Leo Varadkar, the Irish Taoiseach, the Prime Minister. And I'm saying that because I think this this year has shown that the European Union, with all, warts and all, as they say, has its um, very positive function, not least for small member states who are able to clearly um, give Brussels their their national interests, argue for them and, and find a way to bring them into this much larger community. And I'm saying that, of course, because I think um, in, in diplomatic terms, Britain with 65 million people, uh, atomic power, etc., uh, nuclear weapons, versus Ireland, not even 5 million. Um, it's game, set and match for Ireland. And Charles, just quickly. Uh, I'm going to nominate as person of the year anybody who has the right to vote in the country that they live in. And I think that voters in general should be given a highlight and that we should re-impress them with the amount of responsibility that they have in exercising that right to vote and get them to exercise it in a way that is educated and considered. Well, on that enfranchising note, we have reached the end of today's show. Charles Hecker and Sebastian Borger, thank you very much for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Carlotta Ribello, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Nick Moniz. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900. It's The Entrepreneurs with Daniel Bache. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. Thank you.